we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And we are recording this Wednesday morning. And joining us is Andrew Arthur, Art Arthur, who is a senior fellow in law and policy here at the Center, veteran of Capitol Hill, as well as a former immigration judge. And the reason we have Art on, and the reason we're even doing this podcast, is because of this Senate border bill that, as of today, seems to be dead on arrival, but it may not be. But I think it's important to talk about what is in the border bill. It's been a topic of a lot of commentary and discussion among politicians and even the public. And so I think it reflects the thinking of political leadership to some degree on what is necessary to control the border, or maybe more importantly, what is necessary to limit the political damage to the president and Democrats of the three years of his border policy. So I thought it was worth talking about the specifics of it, even though it's almost certain it's not going to end up as law on the president's desk to be signed. Nonetheless, parts of it may well end up, you know, being in some future immigration legislation. And it has been, like I said, a hot topic of discussion. So I thought be worth our weighing in on it as well. Thanks, Art, for joining us. And uh, first of all, what's the background of this bill? Why does it exist? And is there some House version of it? What's the sort of starting background? Just to give a little bit of background, the administration wants $61 billion in Ukraine war funding, which provided an opportunity for Republicans in Congress to obtain some border security. We know that the House of Representatives, the Homeland Security Committee, has been attempting to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas, Secretary of DHS, in an attempt to force the Biden administration to secure the border, to actually detain the aliens who are coming in, to deter aliens from coming in, and to curb the parole abuses that the Biden administration has been using to bring about 70,000 extra migrants per month into the United States illegally. So that's the background. This all was handed over to a team of senators, and that team consisted of Jim Lankford of Oklahoma, who is a Republican, Chris Murphy of Connecticut, who is a Democrat, and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, who was a Democrat but is now an independent. And the idea was that the three of them would you know, reach some sort of bilateral or trilateral agreement that would secure the border in exchange for that funding. So that's where this bill came from. But the bill that resulted may have been bipartisan or tripartisan, if you want, but it certainly isn't effective. Yeah, there's an old joke in Washington 
I think it goes back to, you know, the 50s or even the 40s that there's a stupid party and an evil party in Washington. And when they get together, they do something both stupid and evil. It's called bipartisanship. Unfortunately, that uh, is reflected in a lot of immigration legislation and may well be the case here. So, so the House side, though, has its own border bill. That's correct, right? That's correct. The Secure the Border Act, better known as H.R. 2, is a series of amendments to the Immigration and Nationality Act that would curb the president's ability not to enforce the immigration law. In addition, it would also raise some of the standards that already exist for screening migrants before they come into the United States and for thereafter adjudicating their applications for asylum. And of course, asylum is the biggest exception to the limits that Congress has put in place on immigration to the United States. There are you know, rather specific numbers of green card holders who can enter the United States legally every year. The president sets a limit on the number of refugees who could come in. But asylum is truly uncapped. We could grant asylum to one person under U.S. law, no people under U.S. law, or two million people a year under U.S. law. So that is a big exception. The House bill really does aim to limit the number of people to truly those folks who are eligible for asylum clearly under U.S. law. But unfortunately, the Senate has said it won't take up H.R. 2. So you've got a House bill on the uh, one hand. And now that this bill has come out of the Senate, you have a completely separate bill, which does utterly different things. Right. So let's now talk about what are some of the specific things. The uh, first thing is probably the most talked about, although probably not the most important provision, is that if illegal immigrant encounters, so-called, reach a certain trigger level, that a Title 42-like authority allowing immediate expulsion would kick in. And there's a, a lot of sort of, you know, details and fine print around that, but that's the thing that got most of the discussion. And so if we could just briefly talk about what that is and why that could help, but why the way it's spelled out in the bill is problematic. Yeah. So under the bill, if the number of encounters, and that's the number of migrants who are apprehended by Border Patrol at the southwest, southern, and coastal borders, plus the number of aliens deemed inadmissible at the ports of entry, reaches an average of 4,000 in a day, the President and the Secretary of Homeland Security would have the authority to turn away every additional alien who comes to the border, and there are caveats and exceptions to that. Once it reaches 5,000 per day on average, then the president and the secretary are forced to turn away everybody over that 5,000 limit and to shut down the border until after they can bring those numbers down. Again, there are exceptions, and one of the big exceptions is that even when that border is shut down, CBP officers in the Office of Field Operations at the ports must still have the capacity to process through 1,400 illegal aliens through the ports every day. So that's an oversimplification. And let me just note the fact that unlike the rest of this bill, that provision would sunset within a few years. So that one would die. All the other parts of this bill would remain in effect. Right. And like you said, that even if this border shutdown so-called were in place, which doesn't apply to unaccompanied minors, for instance, Yes, the administration would be required to admit a minimum, it says a minimum 
of 1,400 inadmissible aliens, people who have no right to be in the United States, it would have to admit a minimum of 1,400 every day while this shutdown authority supposedly was in place. And, you know, my question, a lot of people's question is, why should there even be a trigger of 4,000 or 5,000 a day? Why wouldn't you just have a kind of um, authority where the president could declare a, or the secretary of Homeland Security could declare a border emergency, regardless if they thought it was necessary? And then maybe some kind of requirements about reporting to Congress or some such thing like that. But it seems to me if you're going to have that kind of authority, what this bill tried to do is have as little of it and as weak an authority as possible and one that would expire before Donald Trump, if he were to win in November, would be president for too long. You know, you actually touch on two important points there. One is that the president already has the authority under Section 212F to ban the entry of any alien or group of aliens that he wants for as long as he wants and for any reason that he wants. Now, that's been subject to Supreme Court review back in 2018. The Supreme Court said that that authority exudes deference to the executive in every clause. And President Trump actually relied on that authority for many of the regulatory actions that he took and for many of the executive orders that he issued. So, you know, whether President Biden could use that authority to just shut down the border unilaterally is a pretty clear issue to me, but it was it's one that would have to be resolved ultimately by the Supreme Court. So, you know, it exists. It's pretty clear to me, but it would still require the Supreme Court to bless that. But it is a power that he has. More importantly, however, President Biden, just like President Trump, has the authority to turn away everybody who makes an asylum claim at the southwest border and send them back across the border to Mexico while awaiting their removal proceedings. Of course, if that sounds familiar, it was that provision in Section 235B2C of the INA that President Trump relied on for his Remain in Mexico policy. That's pretty clear authority. So the president could plainly use that power, which is very powerful, to turn these folks away. The problem is Joe Biden doesn't want to use these powers. It's almost like he's saying, unless you create a power that I have to use, I'm not going to shut down the border. And there's another issue as well. And you had mentioned Jay Johnson and that, you know, 4,000 limit per day. Let me just note the fact that between 2007 and 2020, that, you know, 14 year period before Joe Biden ever took office, the largest average number of migrants that uh, Border Patrol received per day on an annual basis was about 2,300. Most years, it was closer to about 1,100 migrants entering the United States illegally per day. So when you talk about a 5,000 limit, you're really talking about regularizing this illegal flow, this historically large and unprecedented legal flow that has existed since Joe Biden took office, that Joe Biden basically created through his policies. Right. It kind of normalizes illegal immigration at a dull roar instead of, uh, you know, the ridiculous levels that we had been seeing before. But the point I was going to bring up is that whether it's remain in Mexico or something like that, which the authority for which already exists in law or this, you know, expulsion authority, or even Title 42, those all require Mexico's cooperation, right? I mean, Mexico's a sovereign country. And 
in a sense, if a non-Mexican sneaks through Mexico and gets into the U.S., it's kind of it's sort of like a hot potato thing. It's uh, it's our problem now, and we can pressure Mexico, but Mexico doesn't have to take non-Mexicans back just because they passed through Mexico. We have to either with carrot or stick or both get them to agree to do that, right? Yeah, absolutely. But it's also important to note the fact that Mexico, which as anywhere between the 11th and 17th largest economy in the world, has the United States as its largest trading partner. We have a lot of economic leverage over Mexico to accept those people back. We actually have a pretty good legal argument that we have to force that. All of those people who were coming over the Mexican border had already been in Mexico. So we would be simply be sending them back to a country that had already either permitted or allowed those individuals to be in their country. And if we turn them away, normally you send them back to the country that they came from. So there's a legal argument, but there's also significant economic power. Donald Trump wielded that power extremely effectively. And in fact, he took a victory lap in June of 2019 when Mexico agreed to take back all of those Remain in Mexico people. We could implement that plan again you know, tomorrow, and the Mexican government would end up acceding to it. The Biden administration lacks the will to force the Mexican government to do that. Yeah, see, that's but that's the issue, is I'm saying is that even if the, as this bill, this border bill would suggest that that 5,000 illegal immigrants a day, the administration would be required to expel them and introduce some kind of Title 42-like authority. But if the administration kind of winked and nodded at Mexico and saying, you know, please don't agree to this. The mandate in the law is irrelevant because we can't mandate Mexico to do anything. And if the administration is the one that would have to apply that economic and other persuasion, arm twisting, to get them to agree, if the administration doesn't want it, it doesn't matter whether the law says they're required to do it, they just wouldn't be able to do it. Yeah. And so, you know, under the law, DHS does have the authority to send those people back to their home country, but you bring up a very important point. Most of those people would really just be sent back across the border to Mexico. So by agreeing to this bill and promoting this bill, the Biden administration is admitting the fact that it could force the Mexicans to take back everything more than 5,000, which proves that the Biden administration admits that it could force the Mexicans to take back any additional migrants over any number, be it 1,000, 2,000, 4,000, or 5,000. So yeah, implicit in the Biden administration's promotion of this bill is, yeah, the president does have the ability to arm twist the Mexicans to take people back. Right. So let's move on to another portion of it. This is something you had written about as well, is that this bill would create a parallel system for judging asylum claims that would almost certainly be less rigorous than the one we have now. It seems to be promoted by the administration and the people who negotiated this bill as a way of, you know, expediting the asylum process and, you know, not having the uh, problem of long backlogs. So first of all, without getting too much into the weeds, what is this new parallel asylum system that bill would set up and what are the pluses or minuses of it? So really briefly, a complaint that's been made about the existing expedited removal provision is 
that the exception to expedited removal, credible fear, has a standard that's too low. It's a significant probability or possibility that an alien would be able to establish eligibility for asylum. So it's sort of less than that well-founded fear standard for asylum. This would boost that up to a reasonable possibility standard, which is basically a more likely than not, which is essentially the well-founded fear standard. It would also include exceptions for aliens who can relocate internally in their country and avoid whatever persecution they allege that they're going to suffer. And those are the sorts of things that people talk about in Washington as you know game changers. They're really not. That low credible fear standard is part of the reason why uh, so many people pass credible fear. We know that about 83% of them in the 12-year period between 2008 and 2019 pass credible fear. But a lot of it has to do with internal USCIS procedures. And, you know, those procedures in USCIS are very immigrant friendly. They want to get to the point at which they consider that alien's asylum claim. But under the law in 1996, up until March of 2022, those cases, those asylum claims by aliens who passed credible fear were heard by immigration judges in immigration court. And that's a adversarial proceeding. There's a government attorney that represents the interests of the United States. People of the United States could cross-examine, you know, those aliens offer, you know, country conditions and other impeachment evidence with respect to those claims. In March of 2022, the Biden administration implemented a purely regulatory scheme at which those asylum claims by those aliens, those border migrants who were stopped and passed credible fear, would be heard by asylum officers within USCIS in non-adversarial interviews. There wouldn't be anybody to offer any contrary evidence. There wouldn't be anybody to appeal any wrongly decided decisions. And one of the arguments that the center made, and importantly, a group of states that sued to block this proposal made is that it doesn't provide all of those protections against bogus or fraudulent claims resulting in asylum grants. Amongst the states that sued to block that, or that are suing right now to block that regulatory plan are Kentucky, of course, Mitch McConnell's home state, and Oklahoma, Jim Langford's home state. So at the same time that, you know, Langford and McConnell states are suing to block the administration from doing this administratively, and this gets to the bill, the bill includes a provision that would permit the president to set up this entirely separate asylum officer scheme without all of those protections against fraudulent and bogus claims in law. So you'd basically be creating two belts, one of which, you know, would lead to immigration court and all of those protections for the American people, and another one that would lead to USCIS where Joe Biden and Alejandro Mayorkas could more or less control the entire process. Right. And that would almost definitely result in more erroneous grants of asylum. Right. So it basically codifies, in a sense, I mean, with, with changes, it codifies that administration policy which is what 20 states are suing to stop. So that's kind of remarkable in the sense that a bill that is supposed to be addressing and limiting the abuses, or ideally would be limiting the abuses of the administration that created the border crisis, actually in this respect would codify those abuses. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's the opposite of what it's been sold as. There's another element of the bill. We don't have to go into too much detail, but one of the ways this has been 
pitched is that this would end catch and release. At least that's the way the Republicans who are promoting it. But in fact, this would require the release of lots of illegal immigrants uh, anyway. In other words, it would statutorily require release. So what's the story with the release of people and with the supposed alternatives to detention that are supposed to make up for that? Yeah, and that gets to a very, very important point. As I said before, this creates a two-belt system, one to the immigration court and one to asylum officers to adjudicate those claims. Under the laws it's currently written, the Biden administration is under a mandate to detain every migrant that enters the United States illegally. And we know that the reason, the, the, the main reason why we're seeing this border crisis right now is because the Biden administration refuses to comply with that standard. It says that it doesn't have enough detention beds for all those people. But of course, President Biden in his budget request keeps asking for fewer detention beds for people, even as this crisis goes on. There is a provision that would boost the number of detention beds, but everybody that goes over to that asylum officer belt, including adults, would be subject to mandatory release, not mandatory detention. So this actually enshrines mandatory release, catch and release, if you would, in the law. One of the things that the Border Patrol Union has been pushing as an improvement in this bill is that it would require us to detain all single adult migrants. But if you read the bill itself, again, it mandates the release of single adults if they are subject to that separate belt that they could go to. The separate asylum system, in other words, that it sets up. Yes, and the bill actually gives Alejandro Mayorkas unfettered discretion based upon operational conditions to send anybody that he wants to that separate belt in which they get released. Now, they get released on alternatives to detention. And our colleague, John Fury, just posted a piece in which he explains how alternatives to detention or ATD really isn't very effective. You know, the the high rates at which people are allowed to remain in the United States, notwithstanding, you know, this so-called alternative to detention. The important thing to know about ATD is it's both costly and ineffective. And yet, for some reason, again, in the closed door atmosphere of Washington, D.C., this is being promoted as some sort of panacea, something that, you know, ends catch and release when it really just simply continues catch and release. Yeah, I always thought alternatives to detention should be called alternatives to enforcement because it's really more uh, a kind of a fig leaf to enable people, advocates and people in the government who support it, enable them to pretend that these people are still in the immigration enforcement system when in fact, really for all intents and purposes, uh, they've just been let go and, you know, it's game over. There's a key point with respect to that, Mark, I just want to touch on very quickly. If those people are released on ATD or not, it doesn't matter. I still has to go out and pick them up to remove them. They can ask them to come right. in for removal, but if they don't show up, ICE is going to have to find them. The bill itself admits that at least some, if not all of those people, even after they get all their due process and go through that asylum officer system, aren't going to leave because there is a motion to reopen provision in there for the aliens who don't leave. So the bill itself admits it's not going to be effective at making any of those people leave the United States. That's a key thing for people to understand. Again, adults with kids and single adults. Right. So another element in this bill is 
lots of money the way it's been described, I think accurately, as a bailout for communities that are complaining about all the illegal immigrants that they're having to deal with, New York most notably, but you're hearing Chicago and other places complain as well, and money for the nonprofit groups, most of which are allies of this administration, to help them basically uh, transport and shelter and feed illegal immigrants, all of this on taxpayer money. It's uh, several billion is authorized for that. We don't need all of the amounts, but what's going on with this, in a sense, kind of a slush fund, I guess you, you could describe it, for supporters of the administration, either at the municipal level or the nonprofit groups? The bill would provide, you know, all told about $7 billion for the Departments of Homeland Security, State Justice, and Health and Human Services to fund sanctuary jurisdictions and those NGOs that are, you know, uh, transporting and providing for migrants once they're in the United States. We know you can look at New York and see that assistance that localities are providing is an incentive for migrants to go to those localities. There's a reason that people are going to New York and Chicago and Portland, Maine and Denver, because they know that once they're there, they won't have to support themselves so much as the locality is going to support them. So on the one hand, these localities are creating these benefits that these aliens can take advantage of. And on the other hand, they're complaining about the fact that so many people are coming there to take advantage of these benefits that they're voluntarily providing. And this bill would fund that continued incentive system, bail out the states and the localities, as you indicated, and continue to send money to the NGOs so that we can continue this conveyor belt of people into the interior of the United States. And I thought one of the notable elements of this is something you had written about a little while back, that the vehicle for a lot of the money that's going to be going to these supposed nonprofit groups is a program within FEMA, Federal Emergency Management Agency, which started a program a number of years ago for homeless veterans and other people who were down on their luck and has now been totally swallowed up by a program to fund essentially illegal immigrants once they're in the United States. You could just describe a little bit about that. Sure. The Emergency Shelter and Food Program is a program that started under the Reagan administration. As you noted, when we had a problem with a lot of homeless veterans who were on the streets, and what it does is it provides money to you know those homeless vets, to elderly people who can't support themselves, to Native Americans who have fallen on hard times. In 2019, when President Trump was begging Congress for additional detention funding, Democrats in Congress hollowed out that and created a program that would fund migrants who had been released from the United States through these NGOs. And it's, a, it, it's technically a federal government program, but it's effectively run by the NGOs itself to distribute that funding for those folks in the United States. And it really is that ESFP, the Emergency Shelter and Food Program at FEMA, that would be the vehicle for the distribution of this money to those NGOs. Right. So the last specific element of the bill I wanted to talk about, which is kind of improbable that it's in there, is that the bill would also increase green cards by 50000 per year for five years, split between family-related, family green cards and employment-related green cards. 
what on earth is an increase in legal immigration, increase in the number of green cards we give out? What does that, I mean, you know, what kind of connection is there to a bill that's supposed to be clamping down on illegal immigration at the border? Yeah, there is none. You know, once the trough was open, the trough was open and special interest groups could start asking for their fair share. But that sort of, you know, underscores one of the fundamental issues for this bill. The reason that the president is willing to deal with the Republicans on this issue at all is because this is a huge political liability. This is, in many polls, the biggest issue that American voters have. And in every poll, President Biden's biggest electoral or re-electoral liability and a huge liability for Democrats. So rather than, you know, simply give a set of terms that the administration would have to meet to clamp down on the border in order to get that money, for some reason, the Republicans opened this up as a negotiation for additional things that Democrats wanted. And part of the reason why you're seeing such a huge backlash in not just the House of Representatives, which would prefer to have H.R. 2, which is a much better bill, but also in the Senate is that there were all these extraneous issues that were added as sweeteners for a bill that should have been a take it or leave it agreement on the part of Senate Republicans. They should have said, look, you secure the border, you don't get your money. It ended up being, well, you secure the border or you don't get your money and yeah, we'll give you a bunch of other stuff and it won't really secure the border. Right. So are there any other provisions of the bill that are worth noting? We've really touched on the biggest one. Again, this is a 370-page bill. There's one specific provision that I just wanted to touch on, though. And if you you don't really know the ins and outs of immigration, you're not going to get this. A specific provision in the bill will continue a welfare giveaway that I've described in the past for Cubans and Haitians. Under a 1980 law, if you were a Cuban or a Haitian and you're allowed into the United States on parole or you have a pending application for asylum, you become immediately eligible for means-tested public benefits, welfare, Medicaid, food stamps. If the bill were to go into effect without an exception, those folks would probably be cut off from those benefits. But they put a specific provision in the bill that allows every Cuban and every Haitian, as soon as they arrive in the United States, to immediately apply for food stamps and Medicare and welfare benefits. But again, it's done so sneakily. It's, you know, they don't say that. They refer to various other bills that if you don't know what's going on, you're not going to know. Right now, the Biden administration is moving in 30,000 Cubans, Haitians, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans a month under a separate and illegal parole program. This bill doesn't do anything to stop that program, but it's important for the listeners to understand every Cuban, every Haitian who gets off an airplane, and most of these people are released at interior airports in the United States, as soon as they walk out of the airport, they can immediately apply for Medicare and food stamps and welfare benefits, cash benefits. So yeah, this bill specifically continues that giveaway for those people. And that really uh, highlights a bigger problem with the way this bill was put together. And this is a problem really with the way Congress has been malfunctioning for many years, not just on immigration, is that this whole thing was hooked up behind the scenes. There were leaks and rumors, but nobody saw the language until Sunday night. 
and we're recording this Wednesday morning, and supposedly there may be a test vote, as it were, in other words, a vote about whether they should cut off debate and proceed to a vote on the bill. So, you know, you're supposed to read a 370-page bill that has these kind of convoluted provisions, like you talked about here, this Cuban and Haitian thing, that you wouldn't know from reading the bill unless you referred to the other laws that the bill was talking about. This is no way to run a railroad. I mean, aren't there supposed to be hearings and, you know, amendments and a way for people, for lawmakers and the public to actually kind of check under the hood, see what's in the bill and make the case for various provisions of it. Some will survive, some won't. Whereas this kind of idea of cooking something up behind the scenes by a handful of people and then springing it on the rest of the lawmakers, as well as the public, just doesn't seem a particularly good way to make a make law. Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. And, you know, the important phrase to remember is regular order. Normally, a bill is introduced into one of the chambers. It gets assigned to a committee. The committee then has a hearing and marks up that bill. And then it goes to the floor of that chamber for a vote. It then goes over to the other chamber, you know, to be considered through the same regular order process. And if the bill passes there, it goes to a conference committee to fix, you know, any differences between the two bills. Again, that's regular order. People have time to read the bill. They have time to understand what's going on. This is an example of what I call legislation by crisis. You know, you have just a a handful of people, and we saw this in the Gang of Eight bill, who work behind closed doors. Nobody gets to see what's being said. There are leaks in major publications, but no real language. And this one was dropped at seven o'clock on a Sunday night with the idea that it would be voted on on a Wednesday. And it is 370 pages and it is very intricate in, you know, its viscera because it does have things like that Cuban and Haitian giveaway that, you know, if you didn't know, you wouldn't know. And even if you're a member of Congress, you're going to, you know, look at that language and not really think much about it. So, yeah, this bill was doomed to failure because of the way that it was introduced. If this had been a perfect bill that said we shut down the border once a thousand people enter, I think, you know, it, and it were written on five pages of uh, legislative paper, it could be subject to an up and down vote in five days. But if you're talking about something that is this intricate, that has hundreds of billions or more than a hundred billion dollars in it, and people are going to be expected to vote on it, you know, three days later, it's just doomed for failure. This is a situation in which things like Twitter really show their effectiveness because it allowed thousands of people to take a look at this bill and identify specific provisions that were bad that senators could then take a look at. So, you know, we sort of crowdsourced the legislative process to enable it to work. But this is not the way to run a railroad. It's not an effective way to push massive legislation like this. Right. Well, thanks for uh, discussing this with us, Art. It's, you know, almost certain that this is not going to end up on the president's desk. It may not even get out of the Senate because interestingly enough, Senator McConnell, who's the Republican leader, the minority leader in the Senate, who is the one who tapped Senator Lankford from Oklahoma as the Republican negotiator in this uh, gang of three, as it were. I don't think anybody's called it that yet, but that's sort of what it is. He now has said that his his caucus, his Republicans should vote against this because of the outcry. And even Senator Lankford himself has said he would likely vote against a procedural motion to 
continue on the bill, I guess, so that there could be more discussion of it or what have you. But it seems like even the people who are responsible, or at least partly responsible for the bill, are going to be voting against it. So in a sense, it's sort of a tempest in a teapot, but I think it is important, both because of the political reasons you suggest. In other words, the president and the Democrats were trying to engineer a way of blaming the Republicans for their border disaster, but it's also important because it reveals a lot of the specific provisions that may well show up in future legislation and I think are important for people to understand so that they recognize if any of these elements come up in the future, they can say, yeah, we were familiar with that. We saw that in that Senate border bill. So anyway, um, we're going to obviously keep following this. Thank you, Art, for uh, walking us through this bill. And we will obviously have you back regardless, but maybe have you back if something actually happens with this legislation. That sounds good. That's it for this week's episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. I'm actually at the border in Eagle Pass, and we're going to be going to Del Rio as well. I'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But for now, this is Mark Krikorian signing off for Parsing Immigration Policy.